Welcome to American Players Theater Talkbacks to Go. I'm Buzz Kemper, and I invite you to take a walk up the hill with Orange Schroeder and me as Orange chats with director David Frank about APT's production of The Game of Love and Chance by Pierre Carlet de Chamblain de Moraveau, translated by Stephen Wadsworth. Hello, we're talking about The Game of Love and Chance with director David Frank, recently retired as artistic director of APT and uh, happily still involved in directing this wonderful French piece as the fall play for American Players Theatre. It's written by Pierre Carlet de Marivaux, who was a well-known playwright at his time, in his time, um, very uh, prolific. And the play was first performed in 1730, so we're going back to um, you know, close to the Elizabethan time. And I wanted to ask David to start with, the play is a little bit like Shakespeare in that it has mixed up couples, but not, uh, from what I understand, mm. as many characters as a Shakespeare play might no, have No, it's very, very different from Shakespeare. It does, true, have mixed up couples, and that's uh, uh, central to this particular play, and um, actually very central. It's funny, I've just, uh, I've just come from a production of Comedy of Errors <clears throat> that also has mixed up, this time, mixed up twins. But other than that superficial similarity, uh, they couldn't be more different. Um, <clears throat> Shakespeare, you know, it's, it's something that always fascinates me, is trying to find the, um, the, the sp specific, unique, unusual voice of that playwright. If you're a great writer, you will add something that has never, you'll say something, it may have been said before, but never been said in quite that same way before. And the way you say it adds to what it is as well. Uh, what fascinated me about the Marivaux was, as you say, it's about, um, uh, uh, there's a wonderful central device to it, which gives it a kind of formality because it's symmetrical. And this is a, formal time in uh, French society. Uh, the whole thing is going to break open <laughs> late that century, but it isn't happened yet. Um, it's um, class is rigid and important, and um, you can sense a wonderful tension. And so he takes advantage of that with one of the great devices. If Comedy of Errors was a great device, uh, the Game of Love and Chance has an equally great one. And it's actually something that is evident very early in the play, so I'm not revealing any secrets when I describe what the device is, um, which is that um, in a family in which there is a marriage that approaches an arranged marriage, that actually part of the joke is dad is always saying, hey, it's up to you, do whatever you want, but you don't believe him for one moment. <laughs> He says you can do whatever you want because he knows you will do what he wants there. So you have a situation in which this young woman of a very specific class um, is very concerned and slightly rebellious underneath the fact that she's going to have to marry someone who she's never met, who's been picked by dad. So she opts for a device, a disguise. She disguises herself with her servant, swaps, so that she'll have a chance to observe him as servant without him knowing who she is. What she doesn't know is that he's decided to do exactly the same thing. 
Not she also doesn't know is that Dad and her brother are in on it. They know about the whole thing, so... But rather than producing a kind of freewheeling chaos that Shakespeare would have had brilliantly, or Moliere would have had 75 years earlier, approximately, um, this produces a piece that is on the surface formal, and the, so the form is obvious and playable, but underneath it is rebellious and emotional. And it's the clash of the form versus the reality that I find particularly interesting and the source of something that is both funny and surprising. So it is, um, in some ways, on the surface, it looks like, oh, we have this convention, we have this device. I'm, I don't know that anyone's ever had exactly that device before, but similar, you know, whether they're twins or, in this case, um, a very different device, but nonetheless a, a symmetrical device where where the other half doesn't know that the other half is doing the same thing. It's it's a fascinating piece. And you mentioned the form before. What does it owe to the uh, Comedia de Arte form? Well, that it's famous for having sprung from that, but of course the Commedia dell'arte was um, was highly improvised. So and very free um, in its origins. Tell, tell us a little bit what it is in case people don't know. Oh, Commedia dell'arte, well, it's an Italian... Huh, I'm no expert on this, but it's a tradition in the Italian theater, improvised with, with very famous stock characters, Harlequin, uh, famously so, and Harlequin will actually appear in this. And... Um, uh, it, it had an intense tradition, and the stock characters were, were part of its charm because they got, as soon as they saw Harlequin, they knew what he was up to, and he was the you know, exciting, dashing rogue. Um, in this case, Harlequin in, uh, in the Marivaux, La Game of Love and Chance, uh, Harlequin actually becomes the servant. That the other guy, that the young man, potential lover, swaps with, because they both swap with their servants. So you allow two servants pretending to be aristocrats. So anyway, um, that that tradition, which comes to France, and is a, there is a a, a theatre uh, that 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 espouses the continuation of that tradition. But Marivaux became famous for taking one of those stock characters and turning them into someone quite real, even though they had characteristics of the stock character. So he really advanced change. It wasn't really, took a, you know, each great writer builds on the other earlier writers. Uh, w without Marlowe, there's probably no Shakespeare. Um, and, and on and on and on there. Uh, so in this particular case, yes, he builds on, on, on the, the Commedia dell'arte tradition, which is, um, a well, well established with, with a lot of improvisation, but growing number of texts that started to be known. Um, but within that, room for lots of improvisation and an actor who always played a certain role and an audience that would be familiar with what those expectations were. So he'd come on stage and there might be a, oh, we know what's gonna happen now. <laughs> um, but, but it's a long, in, 
it has a bigger nominal connection with Commedia dell'arte than it has an actual connection because the piece is far from improvised. And I think of um, Camellia dell'arte as being partially mimed and you mentioned a connection uh, well, with the white yeah, church. Yeah, we are going to. The, the, um, the Wordsworth translation, it's actually not in the original French, uh, ends with a dance. And I can completely understand why. It, it needs something. Shakespeare used to find this frequently. <laughs> we need something to wrap it up. A dance! <laughs> um, and, but I found it a little arbitrary just going straight to a dance when that hadn't been, that medium hadn't been in the evening at all. And then, because I've always admired their work and, and uh, I've actually in the past worked with some mimers from the same school. And because I was interested in the formality and was interested in introducing the idea of dance, it suddenly occurred to us that we could suggest dance right at the top. That's actually more mime than dance, but I think an audience will go away saying, oh, there was that odd storytelling dance at the top. And then just touch on it on other occasions. So again, it kind of pays tribute to its antecedents, to its... Um, uh, to, to, to the Commedia tradition that it sprang from a l in you know, many different, many ways before. Um, but also it gives a chance for us to explore a rather formal form, outer form, and oppose it to the chaos internally. And I think we can extend that idea. And they're just, they're two very talented. And it's just, uh, no, the idea of APT and, and the White Church Project being able to co-produce something or work together is, I think, very exciting. And the White Church Project is in Spring Green. It, just down the road. Which is a, a tribute to the uh, cultural rich lives of people living in this area. It is indeed, yes. And uh, APT describes the play as being crisp and witty. What, what makes it crisp? What makes it crisp is the formality and precision of the storytelling. Um, it's not witty in the same sense that Shaw is witty, where the lines themselves are funny. Although it's funny because Marivaux had a reputation of being a rather uh, uh, being a wit. But when you read the play, that's not what springs out. What springs out is the irony of when you say something when the audience knows something that you don't know, so that, <clears throat> so that every interchange becomes heavily ironical. But it's based on the, on the situation. And his very economical writing, he, he, it, uh, he writes with great clarity in that respect, he's like Molière, great clarity, simplicity, precision. Um, but the wit is not the kind of verbal wit that we'd get from Shaw or often from Shakespeare or from Stoppard. It's the, it springs from the situation. And do you think that made it easier for uh, Stephen Wadsworth to translate it? Oh, I'd have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I imagine because you're not dependent it's funny, for a long time, Marivaux was much better known in France than he was in this country. Well, the same was true of Moliere, of course, until um, earlier in the last century. Um, and Wadsworth is credited with um, kind of 
introducing him to American audiences. Now, what you're not landed with as a translator there, I think, is, um, is the difficulty of translating complex poetry. But you still have to translate the precision and what turns out to be a very witty... They're, they're witty scenes because of situation and that kind of irony. And will it be set in the 1730s? Yeah, approximately. We're, 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 um, you know, Bob Morgan isn't going... They're wonderful clothes. We've already designed them. Uh, yes, give or take a decade here or there. And uh, what do you think that audiences will, will leave thinking about uh, the, the game of love and chance? Hmm. Marivaux's ultimate theme, I think, was that um, if you feel something strongly enough, it can upturn any particular apple cart, including that, including even that very formal class structure. Um, and clearly, what is what? what there's also a satisfaction out of it in sometimes just the sheer aesthetic, the aesthetic pleasure of the sheer form. Like you look at a, a perfect piece of pottery or a perfect snuff box or something and you just kind of glow with pleasure. Or listening to Mozart, <laughs> you just glow with pleasure because the aesthetics is dead on. <laughs> so I hope that feeling will be there as well as the feeling that what is personal is even stronger than what is um, imposed by society. And that experience of something classical is something that we only get at American Players Theatre. Thank you so much, David. <laughs> Thank you. Talk Backs to Go is a production of Orange Tree Imports, Pro Video and Film, and Audio for the Arts. Your host is Oren Schroeder. I'm Buzz Kemper. Our music is by Steve Tibbetts and is used by permission of the artist. Please find us on iTunes and YouTube under APT Talkbacks to Go. Thank you for listening. <laughs>